It started with a telephone call. Honestly, it started before that, but it was a telephone call in January 1911 that gave the first indication to police that they were not dealing with a handful of random killings. Most of the axe murders that occurred in Louisiana and Texas during that three-year period were the work of a single killer, a repeat murderer, as they called serial killers at a time when that term didn't yet exist. And he wasn't finished with his bloody business. The first hint of what some called the Church of Sacrifice murders came to the attention of the authorities when a police officer in West Crowley, Louisiana, took an urgent call from neighbors who feared that something terrible had happened at 605 Western Avenue. When Officer Below arrived at the house, he found that the home's three occupants, a man, a woman, and a young boy, had been murdered in their beds. Their skulls had been split open. The mattresses were soaked with blood and smeared footprints were on the floor. The doors were all bolted from the inside, suggesting the killer had entered the house through a window and killed everyone while they slept. In the corner of one room was a basin filled with bloody water. Propped against the foot of the bed was the murder weapon, a blood-stained axe. A local newspaper called the crime the most brutal murder in the history of this section, but it would turn out to be one of many axe lanes across Louisiana and Texas in the early 19-teens. Over time, newspapers would reveal that the murders were connected to a deranged voodoo cult called the Church of the Sacrifice, which claimed its victims for bloody rituals. Well, some of them might have been, I guess, if you want to call it that, but we'll come back. Because I should clarify, they might have been if the so-called voodoo cult had actually existed. You see, nothing was what it seemed in Louisiana and Texas between 1909 and 1912. There were the alleged cult murders, and then there was something perhaps even more sinister, the lone killer who was preying on poor families in the Deep South. The axe fiend, as many would later call him, was no worshiper of the supernatural. He was one of the most prolific killers in American history, rivaling even the infamous Billy the Axe Man, who would claim victims across the Midwest, including the Moore family in Villisca, Iowa, right around this same time. The killer in Louisiana and Texas would eventually claim at least 45 men, women, and children from 12 families across the Deep South. These horrendous crimes not only remain unsolved, but are largely unknown more than a century later. Why? Why is this story not as famous as the stories of the murders that occurred in Villisca and across the Midwest? They're eerily similar in that the killer was never caught. He left gruesome crime scenes behind and even likely traveled by train from town to town. Well, the answer to that question is both tragic and regrettable. All the victims of the axe fiend in Louisiana and Texas were black or of mixed race. The murders created a panic in African-American communities over the course of those three horrifying years. There was a deep-seated fear that one's entire family might be wiped out ruthlessly while they were sleeping. It was a terror, as it turned out, that was well justified. Dozens of people lost their lives. The panic was surprisingly well-documented by the press at the time, mostly thanks to the sensational nature of the killings and the lurid tales of black magic and voodoo that later surrounded them. Many are surprised to learn that it was not the police who were overtly racist about the crimes. It was the newspapers. 
The way that the white press looked at these murders provides an often disturbing insight into the distance that the white community felt toward the black community during those days of Jim Crow. The murders were even used to terrorize black individuals and communities with letters threatening attacks by the Axe Fiend. It became clear in the press accounts that the panic among African Americans in the region lasted long after the killings came to an end, and that much of the panic was created by the newspapers themselves. There is no question, though, that black families had every reason to be afraid. None of them were prepared for a killer like this. The Axe Fiend didn't kill just one person. He wiped out entire families. He came in the night and he vanished without ever being seen. His victims were always poor, so robbery was never the motive, and he usually left the murder weapon behind at the scene of the crime. Each of the crime scenes was always a stone's throw away from the tracks of the Southern Pacific Railroad, suggesting he'd arrived by train and left town the same way. Those small towns became terrifying places. The fear felt by black families became a paranoia that permeated the entire town. No one slept well at night. Out of fear of the killer and because of the fear of being shot by those who stood guard against the axe fiend. To make matters worse, each of the murders was followed by the arrival of hoodoo doctors who came to town selling charms to keep away the killer. But would they work? Well, most feared they wouldn't because rumors had spread that the axe fiend had voodoo talismans of his own, which was how he avoided detection. And perhaps his gree bags worked because the axe fiend, well, was never found. He took the secrets of his killings with him to the grave. The axe fiend vanished in the spring of 1912, and he was never heard from again, leaving a legacy of terror and mystery in his wake. The strange story of the axe fiend is not only uniquely Southern, but it's uniquely American, too. It's a snapshot of a time and place that is thankfully long past, and yet it still reverberates today. It's a story of crime, murder, mystery, black magic, voodoo, and the racism that runs through every part of it. It's also a story that just might convince you to leave the lights burning when you're home with your family, alone at night. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the last act of this season, Woods and Fields Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This has been a strange and twisted season so far, filled with witchcraft, hexes, curses, mysterious disappearances, and the many spirits and sins of America's past. But this last chapter has definitely become the bloodiest and most twisted as we delve into some of the murders that have occurred in our country's forests, farms, and fields. This is episode 22, the second to last episode of this season. And it's a brutal one. Recounting a tale of murder, mayhem, and bloodshed that remains largely unknown after more than a century of trying to forget that it ever happened. But it did happen, and it's the kind of story that just might haunt your dreams. In the early morning hours of November 13, 1909, terror first struck in the small Southern Pacific Railroad town of Rain, Louisiana, a town that, until that day, had been known mostly for the quality of its frog legs. Neighbors who lived in what the newspapers called the Negro Quarter of Town were awakened by screams coming from the home of a mulatto woman named Edna Opelousas. Edna lived in a small shack in the front yard of her father's home with her three children. There were neighbors on both sides of the lot within 20 feet of the shack, 
and a church was less than 50 feet away. There were no witnesses to the attack, but dozens of people saw the results of it. The screams began just after 1 a.m. Neighbors who were startled from their beds rushed to the house and hurried inside. There was, as the Daily Signal newspaper noted, blood and brains scattered all over the little room. Edna was found dead at the scene. Her head had been bashed in by the blunt side of an axe. The children, ranging in age from nine to four years old, had also been hit with the axe, but were still alive when the neighbors arrived. The blood-covered axe had been left behind at the scene as a bloody reminder of the crime. Notice was sent to the police and a doctor was summoned to care for the children, but he pronounced their cases as hopeless, and all three died later that morning. Sheriff Louis Fontenot, and coroner C. Hines Webb drove to Rain to investigate the murder later that morning. Only a few witnesses could be found. According to Edna's sister, whose name was never mentioned in any of the reports I could find, had been asleep at her father's nearby home when she was awakened by the sound of Edna's door being opened. She looked out the window and said she saw a man going inside. She cried out to her sleeping father and a few moments later heard the children screaming in the shack. Before her father could get to Edna's house, the killer fled and was seen by a neighbor next door. He was running south, toward the railroad tracks, by the way, with his hat in his hand. The yard was too poorly lit for either the neighbor or Edna's sister to describe or possibly identify the man they saw. Although a few of the usual suspects were rounded up, including a few who had reason to be angry at Edna, no progress was ever made in the case. It soon grew cold and the police... Well, they moved on to other things. Then in January 1911 came that telephone call to the police in West Crowley, Louisiana. It was a neighbor who feared that something terrible had happened to the Byers family. It turned out that the house's occupants had been murdered. The first officers at the scene found the entire family in one bed in the small home. Walter Byers, his wife, Sylvania, and their six-year-old son had been murdered in their beds. Their skulls had been split open. The beds were drenched in blood and smeared footprints were on the floor. The doors were all bolted from the inside, indicating the killer had entered the house through the window and killed the family while they slept. In the corner was a bucket filled with bloody water and propped against the head of the bed was the murder weapon, that blood-stained axe. All three of the buyers had been struck only one time with the axe, but that had been enough. The little boy had been left at the feet of his parents, posed, turned sideways across the bed. When the police began interviewing the neighbors, they soon found that the Byers family had no known enemies. Walter Byers was an industrious man with a good reputation who worked for one of the rice mills in town. He was known as a quiet, peaceable man who served as a secretary of the Colored Baptist Church. He'd been seen on Tuesday afternoon coming home from work, and Sylvania was last seen about 6.30 that evening. No one was seen entering or leaving their home on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. The coroner estimated they'd been dead about 36 hours when they were discovered. The murder seemed to be completely random, which made them even more terrifying, but they weren't. It was impossible for the lawmen not to notice the similarity of the crime to the one that occurred in nearby rain, and soon the connection between them would become much more obvious. In late January 1911, though, the murders were a mystery. A few weeks later, on February 25th, the killer struck again, murdering four members of the Andrus family in Lafayette, Louisiana. 
Alexander Andrus, his wife Mimi, their three-year-old son Joaquin, and their 11-month-old daughter Agnes. Their house, not much more than a shack, had only one bed. The entire family had been sleeping in it when they were killed. There was blood everywhere. It soaked the bed sheets, spattered the walls, puddled on the floor, and had been sprayed across the ceiling, likely when the axe fiend had swung his weapon back to strike the next blow. But it was what the killer had then done with the bodies that convinced the parish sheriff, Louis Lacoste, that something very strange was going on. The axe fiend had made some adjustments to the bodies after he'd killed them. On the floor next to the bed, he placed the bodies of the two Andrus children. Then he had arranged the bodies of Alexander and Mimi in a position of prayerful kneeling so that it looked as though they were praying over the bodies of the toddler and the infant. Mimi's hands had been placed so that they rested on her husband's shoulder. Eventually, Louis Lacoste, who would become the most important law enforcement figure in the case, came to believe that there was a religious fanatic at work. Just a month later, in March 1911, the killer struck again, but this time in San Antonio, Texas, at the home of Louis Cossaway. Louis was an African-American man born in New Orleans and a prominent citizen of San Antonio. He was respected in political circles, a member of the laborers board, and worked as a porter and messenger at City Hall before taking a job as the custodian at Grant School so he could be closer to his children. He and his wife, Elizabeth, had to get married in Mexico because she was white. But Louis was so well-liked in the city, they never suffered from any kind of discrimination. They were happily married with three children, Josie, Louise, and Alfred, who were six, three, and five months in March 1911. On Tuesday morning, March 21st, students began arriving for classes at the school where Lewis worked, but they found the doors were locked and they were unable to get inside. Lewis had the keys. Well, concerned, Principal Tarver called the home of Lewis's brother-in-law, Richard Campbell, to check on him. Lewis's sister was married to Campbell, a local attorney, and the Campbells lived in a house that adjoined the Cossaway home. Campbell was also Lewis's landlord. When the telephone rang at the Campbell home, it was an oh, answer. Damn it. <clears throat> All right, one more time. When the telephone rang at the Campbell home, it was answered by Bessie Drakes, who rented rooms from the Campbells. She had a young son who often played with the Cossaway children and sometimes spent the night with them. On Monday evening, Josie and Louise had been playing outside with Bessie's son, but around sundown, Bessie went over to the Cassaway house to bring him home, a casual decision that undoubtedly saved his life. Bessie took the call from the school and then went next door to check on the Cassaways. She knocked loudly, but there was no answer. She returned to the Campbells and told Delia, Richard's wife and Lewis's sister, that she couldn't get any response. So Delia went next door to see for herself. She circled the house, calling to her brother and his family and knocking on the doors and windows to try to find a way in. Well, the house was locked up tight. The windows were mostly covered, but from what she could see, it was dark inside. No one was moving around. Now a little alarmed, she hurried back home and got her husband. Richard, unable to get into the house through any of the doors, finally pried off a screen and forced open a window. When he opened it, a bed pillow fell from the windowsill. It had been blocking his view from the inside of the house. 
With the pillow out of the way, he saw the bloody body of Lewis on the bed. Horrified, he ran back immediately to his house and called the police. As soon as news of the murder spread through the neighborhood, curiosity seekers hurried to the scene. By the time officers from both the police and sheriff's departments arrived, the streets were blocked by a crowd of over 500 of the morbidly curious, both black and white. That number continued to grow throughout the day. Even in a town that had seen as much crime as San Antonio in years past, few had ever witnessed the brutality inside of the Castleway home. All five of the Castleways had been murdered, their skulls crushed by the blunt side of an axe. The weapon had been taken from the family's own woodshed and had been left behind at the scene, propped up at the foot of a bed. The walls of the house were spattered with blood, cast off from the swinging of the axe. Lewis was found dead in the bed where his brother-in-law had first seen him. The body of his three-year-old daughter, Louise, was next to him. Lying in a bed in an adjoining room were the bodies of Elizabeth, along with six-year-old Josie and five-month-old Alfred. Of all the corpses, only that of Elizabeth had been moved. She'd been posed so that she was leaning backward out of the bed. The house had not been ransacked. Nothing was out of place. There was blood on the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and even on a child's doll. But aside from that, the house was neat and it was clean. Robbery was ruled out as a motive from the start of the investigation. In Lewis's trousers found at the foot of the bed was a gold watch, a case with an image of St. Joseph on it, and a purse with some coins in it. His pants had also held a ring of 13 keys, some of which were supposed to have been used to unlock the kid's school that morning. None of the neighbors had heard anything out of the ordinary during the night. It had started raining on the previous evening around 11 p.m., and yet the police found no sign of mud or water that had been tracked into the house, just footprints leading away from the back door. They believed the killer must have entered the house before the rain started and possibly hid inside, unknown to the family, and only left after the killing was finished. There was one other thing about the murders that no one had picked up on just yet. It was that the Cassaways were a mixed-race family, and only Elizabeth, a white woman, had been posed. This murder had not yet been connected to the earlier ones, yet in each of those cases, members of the family had also been racially mixed. Aside from the use of an axe to carry out the killings, it would be the one connecting factor in all the murders. Meanwhile, back in Louisiana, Sheriff Louis Lacoste watched the Andrus case get cold. Lacoste was determined to solve it. He was disturbed by it and refused to stop looking for the killer. But the investigation quickly fizzled out. There were no forensic experts in those days. Fingerprint collection and comparison was just getting started and was limited to larger city police departments. There was also little cooperation between various law enforcement agencies in the state, but that would soon change. Weeks passed, and the search for the killer grew cold. Then, almost by accident, Lacoste learned of other crimes that bore an eerie resemblance to the Andrus murders. He first learned about the murders in Rain and Crowley. And then a local man informed Lacoste about an article he'd seen in a Texas newspaper about a San Antonio family that had been murdered in their sleep on March 21st. Lewis managed to track down the report and soon began to believe that all the crimes were connected. And he must have been mortified to reach this conclusion. 
The term serial killer would not come into use for several more decades. And even the idea of a repeat murderer, as they were dubbed at the time, was a foreign concept. As a sheriff of the early 1900s, he was used to dealing with drunks, assaults, and maybe an occasional killing, but not with elaborate multiple murders with seemingly bizarre elements to them. He struggled with the motive behind the murders and even logistics of them. Lacoste became sure they were connected, but how? And why did the killer commit murders in three towns in Louisiana and then travel 450 miles to San Antonio to commit another? Soon he would realize the cities where the murders occurred were all connected by the railroad, which explained how the killer likely traveled. But the motive behind the murders, well, that remained a mystery. Lacoste sent a telegram to the authorities in San Antonio seeking details about the crime scene in their city. He asked about the murders and in return shared the details about the crime in Lafayette and the earlier murders in Rain and Crowley. Lacoste was undoubtedly the first lawman to connect the four murders and to theorize that the axe fiend was traveling by train, but it would soon be shared by other lawmen who were working on the various cases. As the Lafayette Advertiser newspaper noted, the crimes are so alike that they may be the work of the same terrible monster. Well, Louis Lacoste believed they were. And he became almost obsessed with the murders. He believed that he only needed to find the common thread between all of them and the murders could be solved. That common thread he knew was a single killer, a man who had committed four sets of murders across two states. Lacoste was certain he would find that man in Louisiana. And that's when he found Raymond Barnabet. Barnabet was a Lafayette man who was a small-time criminal and a sharecropper. Raymond was arrested after a fight that he had with his mistress. She told a friend that she believed he was somehow connected to the murders. That was all it took to land him in jail. He went to trial in October 1911 and his children, Zephyrin and Clementine, both testified against him. Clementine, who was just a teenager, told a vivid tale about her father returning home one night with blood all over his clothes. He warned his family to keep quiet about it. Or else. Zephyrin confirmed his sister's story, even added that their father had bragged that he killed the whole damn Andrus family. They both told the jury that they feared for their lives that their father didn't go to prison. But while Raymond was in jail, another murder occurred. On November 26, 1911, Norbert Randall, his wife, three children, and a nephew were all killed in Lafayette. The manner of the crime was almost identical to the earlier murders, with only one difference. The entire family had been killed by an axe, but Norbert Randall had been shot in the head. Then on January 18, 1912, Marie Warner, a 30-year-old woman of mixed race, and her children were killed in Crowley. They had all been murdered, bashed in the head by an axe, and the murder weapon had been left behind at the house. It was clear that a murderer was still on the loose. Lafayette Parish Sheriff Louis Lacoste, already suspicious about the stories told by Raymond Barnabet's children, arrested them both. But the murder still didn't stop. In fact, the next one was the most horrendous of all. On January 22nd, Felix Broussard from Lake Charles, Louisiana, was murdered along with his wife Matilda and their three daughters. At some point during the early morning hours, the axe fiend had entered the house through a kitchen window. Felix and Matilda were asleep in the southwest room. 
All three of the children shared a bed in the adjoining northwest side room. It was bitterly cold that night, especially for the deep south, but Matilda had left a fire burning in the stove to keep the house warm. There's no way to know exactly what time the murders occurred, but their next-door neighbor, Victoria Northern, was up late cooking and took notice of the Broussard house the following morning. The back door of the Broussard house was standing open, letting in the chilly morning air. She thought it was strange, so she sent her husband over to knock on the door. Well, no one answered. He offered to go inside, but Victoria told him not to. Go get a police officer instead. Another neighbor, J.C. Thibodeau, came over to the house to see what was happening. It was Thibodeau who first entered the Broussard house just after 10 a.m. He later said that he looked through the back door and saw the leg of a child protruding from under some blankets in the second bedroom. The children had been murdered while they slept, as had Felix and Matilda. Blood that didn't soak into the sheets pooled on the floor and ran into the kitchen area of the house. Investigators were soon on the scene and found signs that showed that the axe fiend had entered through the kitchen window. When he left the house, he left through the back door, leaving it open behind him. Nothing appeared to have been stolen from the house and only a few macabre clues were left behind. In the southwest room, the police discovered the battered bodies of Felix and Matilda in their bed. The only sign of a struggle was that one of Matilda's arms was extended or thrown upward as if she might have been trying to protect herself from a blow. The murder weapon, the Brizard's own axe, was found near their bed. Blood and pieces of dark-colored hair were crusted onto the blunt side of the tool. In the children's bedroom, the police found Louise, Alberta, and Margaret lying on the bed with their skulls crushed. Adding to the horror of the scene, the axe fiend, after he had killed the three little girls, had placed a bucket below the bed where he could catch the blood that dripped from their wounds. Sheriff Davis Reed, the five-time elected sheriff of the parish, was concerned the blood may have been collected for some sort of ceremonial purpose. He feared the murders had been committed by a religious maniac. It's easy to understand why he believed this after he saw what was written on the inside of the family's back door. Some newspapers claim the writing was in blood while others said it was in pencil. Either way, it was a chilling biblical message from Psalms 9:12 that read, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Over to the side of the inscription, the killer had left further writing, human five. No one knew what it meant. Was it the killer's name or what he called himself? Was he designating that he killed five people? While the meaning of the biblical verse to the killer, as well as the human five inscription, remain a mystery today. Just over a month later, on February 19, 1912, the axe fiend struck again, this time in Beaumont, Texas. The attack occurred at the home of Hattie Dove and killed with her were her son Ernest and daughters Ethel and Jesse. The Dove family had last been seen around 9.30 on Sunday evening, and the murders were discovered on Monday morning at 7 a.m. when a neighbor came to the house and discovered the carnage. As with the other crime scenes, blood was found sprayed on the walls and soaked through the sheets on the bed. There was no sign of a struggle, leading the police to believe they had also been killed in their sleep. The axe had been left behind at the scene, propped against the wall. The axe turned out to be one of the oddities of the crime. It didn't belonged to the Dove family. The axe that had killed the family had come from the woodpile of a man who lived about two blocks away. 
Apparently, the killer had picked it up as he was walking to the Dove home. Even stranger, he left another axe in the man's woodpile to replace the axe he'd taken with him. That anomaly has, of course, never been explained. On March 26, 1912, the killer struck again, this time in Glidden, Texas. The victims were Ellen Monroe and four of her 14 children, Alberta, Jesse, Dewey, and Willie. A boarder in the house, Lyle Fayucane, was also killed. The authorities determined that all the victims had been struck while they were sleeping. Lyle and Ellen had been found in one bedroom and the four children were in another. The oldest boy, Willie, had been sleeping on a cot and the three other children were in the bed. All their skulls had been crushed with the blunt side of an axe that had been taken from the family's own woodpile. It was, of course, left behind at the scene. Well, by now, the newspapers were going crazy about the murders. An enterprising reporter for the El Paso Gazette decided the story of the repeat killings would be even spookier if black magic was involved. And what could be scarier than voodoo at a time and place in American history that was steeped in racism? Surely, it was implied no white man could be involved in such heinous crimes, so it must be some part of an African-American ritual. The Gazette published its first story along this line with the headline that read, Voodoo's Horrors Break Out Again. The story suggested that the crimes were connected to human sacrifice rituals that were part of voodoo. The number five was emphasized because it had ritualistic relevance. Of course, there was no truth to this whatsoever, but hey, it was a great story. And everyone knew that scared readers, well, they bought more newspapers. And the newspapers weren't finished. If one reporter could suggest that the murders were part of some voodoo ritual, then another reporter could top that with something even scarier. Rumors had started to spread that Clementine Barnabet was the leader of a cult called the Church of the Sacrifice, which was supposedly led by Reverend King Harris, a Pentecostal preacher with a small congregation connected to the Christ-sanctified Holy Church. The police brought Reverend Harris in for questioning, but the Reverend had never heard of the Church of the Sacrifice and was visibly upset to think that any of his sermons could have inspired a series of axe murders. But he really didn't need to worry because they hadn't. On April 5th, 1912, after sitting in jail for a couple of months, Clementine decided to confess to 17 murders. In her story, she claimed that she had bought a voodoo charm that was meant to protect her while she was committing crimes. Well, if she did, it didn't work. She also said that she and her accomplices drew numbers to see who would commit each murder. When her number came up, she dressed as a man so that she could get around unnoticed at night. She only wanted to kill the adults in the houses she chose, Clementine told the investigators, but she killed the children because she didn't wish to leave them orphans in the cold, cruel world. She refused to reveal why the murders were committed in the first place, but probably because she couldn't make up a story that would explain them. The newspapers printed her full confessions on front pages, but even reporters that had been writing lurid stories of voodoo and cult sacrifices didn't believe much of what she had to say. Clementine had difficulty keeping her story straight, and investigators were all over the place with the information she provided. She'd previously testified in court that her father was the man behind the murders. When they kept happening, though, she took the blame. She gave detectives the name of her accomplices, but either they didn't exist or they were men with solid alibis. A few arrests were made, but the search for the Church of the Sacrifice <laughs> never turned one up. 
The newspapers had created so much confusion in the case that it was almost impossible for investigators to understand what the hell was going on, and the public, well, they were even more confused. Even though hardly anyone brought her story, Clementine did go to trial. District Attorney Howard E. Bruner believed that the two murders that happened after Raymond Barnabet went in jail were copycat crimes, perhaps committed by Clementine. And he was probably right, because she didn't know that religious symbolism fit the real killer's M.O. I think this is the reason he was so over the top with Bible verses and collecting blood and such at the next murder scene. He had to make sure that people knew that one was the axe fiend that had killed the family. The Lake Charles murders are, of all the murders, the ones that get the most attention, simply because the scene was so strange. The axe fiend wanted to not only show his dominance over the black families in the region, he wanted to show it over local law enforcement too. But why? Because someone had stolen attention away from him. Now I'm theorizing that the axe fiend, who probably worked for the railroad, was working somewhere out west when the reports of the Randall murders appeared in the newspaper. There was a conjecture that the murders were part of the same spree of killings that he had been responsible for. Then the Warner murders occurred, which seemed to be part of the same string of murders. Well, the axe fiend couldn't stand the idea that someone else was taking credit for his murders. So he went out of the way to leave all his signatures behind. He entered through a window. He killed everyone with the blunt side of an axe. No one was shot like Norbert Randall had been. And then he left a message behind, just as he had done at the Andrus house. He wanted to make sure that he got credit for the crimes he committed. But unfortunately, it didn't work out as he planned. Clementine Barnabet would steal elements of his crime and mix them into the weird confession she made in April 1912. Also, the police and the media would use some of the ingredients of the late Charles murders to create their own mixture of race, murder, mystery, voodoo, and cults. Thwarted again, is it any wonder that the axe fiend just kept killing? Clementine Barnabet went to trial for the two copycat murders. Uh, she still couldn't stop confessing, eventually claiming she'd killed 35 people, even people no one could find or find any notice they'd been killed. Every time she retold her story, the details changed, so it was impossible to know if anything she said was the truth. Her attorneys thought she was insane, and well, to be honest, I would agree with that. She was found guilty at trial for those copycat murders and was sentenced to life at the Louisiana Penitentiary. She was a model prisoner, though, and was released after 10 years. What became of her after that? Well, that's unknown. The newspapers of the day had no interest in keeping track of a poor black woman who was released from prison, even one that had once been as notorious as Clementine Barnabet. But Clementine's wacko confessions didn't stop the real murders. And the next time the killer struck was in April 1912, again in San Antonio and only blocks away from the Lewis Cassaway house. The victims were William Burton and his family. The first body discovered by the police was of William's wife, Carrie. She was face down on the floor next to the bed. Her skull had been crushed by the blunt side of an axe and a new element to the crimes, a large knife was sticking out of her back. William was still on the bed. He was lying face down and his head had also been crushed. There was more carnage in an adjoining bedroom. The Burton's two children, Naomi, age three, and Edward, age one, were found with their skulls crushed. 
Lying next to Edward on the blood-covered floor was Carrie's brother, Leon Evers. His head had also been smashed, and a knife was also found protruding from his back. These murders, like all the rest, remain unsolved because, well, of course they all did, because the axe fiend was never caught. Well, who was he? We'll never know. The motives of the axe fiend are hard to understand. They were obviously driven by hate and insanity, but a hatred for what? His own race? Was it because of what he considered the impurity of his race and impurity created by the mulatto mixed race families that he seemed to target? A case might be made that the axe fiend was a religious fanatic intent on killing light-skinned blacks or mixed race families. Some of the lawmen involved in the case, including Louis Lacoste, pointed to a Bible verse as the killer's possible motivation. That verse is from the book of Matthew. And it goes, And now also the axe is laid upon the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. It's been suggested that the axe fiend believed that the trees people that were bringing forth bad fruit, the mixed race children, needed to be hewn down as the book of Matthew commanded. This might have been his own interpretation of the scriptures, or perhaps it was one he heard at many of the racist revival meetings across the South and took the verse to heart. There's no doubt in my mind that the axe fiend, though, was an African-American. Records show that the vast majority of serial killers are white, but there are exceptions. I believe the axe fiend was one of them. There's no way he could have entered and escaped from the neighborhoods where he claimed his victims if he were white. He would have stood out and he would have been remembered. White men simply didn't go into those communities at the time unless they were police officers or bill collectors, of course. Could the axe fiend have been trying to purify the black race by removing those who had white blood? I don't know but it's certainly a theory worth considering. I do believe the murders were all about religion. I don't believe they had anything to do with voodoo, hoodoo, or any other sensational religious mumbo jumbo that the press loved to talk about, but perhaps the axe fiend was driven to kill because he thought God told him to. He'd been chosen, perhaps he believed, to butcher the families that had allowed the races to mix. Aside from that, I gotta say, I don't know. This is a confusing and perplexing case, made all the harder to delve into because of the disinterest that there's been in it for so many years. Is it unsolvable now? Most likely. But then again, maybe you never know. Stranger things than a solution to the mystery of the Axe Fiend have happened over the years. So maybe all it'll take is another man like Sheriff Louis Lacoste who vowed to never give up to bring the story of the Axe Fiend to an end. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. 
They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words jump into this joy okay um let's go for it so thanks for tuning into the american hauntings podcast the show where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history we are now in season six of the podcast woods and fields dark and wicked that was oh, yeah, you're getting pretty good getting I was like, that was a war yes. kind of one that song. was i'm your host cody death of the party beck and with me <laughs> as always is my co-host author historian crime buff the founder of american onyx troy the axe man taylor oh man I have yeah. dubbed us some nicknames troy <laughs> i went i went and did some virtual reality stuff the other day at this oh, yeah? this this thing called sandbox vr it's at the foundry in st louis okay. and we got to basically play like a zombie shoot 'em up kind of game and oh, yeah. they had to we had to get nicknames and so i chose <laughs> death of the party because i always love that and then i was thinking i was like what would troy's nickname be and i was like well of course it has to be the axe man well i like axe man although this one I, and i kind of started digging on this axe fiend thing you know okay oh axe from fiend. the other one this one was kind of you know it's kind of a cool name i guess really yes cool. that's true yeah. yeah it's a little cooler bit different than, cooler than like billy you know, Billy. Yeah, Jack. it just sounds better, like, so. yeah, Billy just sounds like any dipshit you grew up with, you know, <laughs> right. that, that decided to go mayhem. OK, but OK, we'll get we'll get to the axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the future. But uh, Troy, it's it's uh, coming up on the holiday season and um, I'm sure you have some upcoming events that no, uh, will I, bring people not. right into the spirit. Well, OK, <laughs> well, you just threw some cold water on that. But um, yes, I mean, Thanksgiving is what, two days away now. So. Yeah, the time everybody hears that. Um, so it is almost the holidays. And um, just this past weekend, my new book came out that Christmas book, uh, One Bleak Midwinter Night, uh, which is, uh, you know, tales of terror and tragedy from holiday seasons past. So um, it actually um, really took off, which I, I was glad about. So because I mean, it's got a narrow window. <laughs> You know, sure. I, mean, I don't I don't think I'll probably be selling a lot of copies in come February. <laughs> you know, this is definitely a holiday season kind of book. But 
Um, but it did take off. And uh, people who came to our events this past weekend in Alton, um, we sold out. I mean, everything I had with me, they're all gone. So uh, that was fun. So, but I will say that if you are going to be in the Alton, Illinois area and, and not necessarily even for one of our events, I am doing a book signing on, uh, on uh, December the 3rd at the Mineral Springs in Alton uh, from 11 to 3. So I will have that book, the new Alton book. I mean, with, everything will be there. Uh, but I'll have plenty of copies of the new Christmas book, which will make the best gift ever to ruin someone's holidays. You know, so yes. it's a, a grim and horrific book about the holidays. But And then the week after that, I am hosting a new and updated Spirits of Christmas dinner. Um, we're holding it in the downstairs, the big ballroom downstairs. So um, we're going to have, right now, we're actually, we're three quarters full, but um, we're having dinner um, and then followed by monsters, merriment, tragedy, ghosts, horrible things about the holidays. So um, it's going to be a fun way to spend the holidays if you're, you know, the same kind of mindset that I have. Uh, and if you want to do something a little bit different, um, you know, hey, it's uh, telling ghost stories was the way our ancestors spent the holidays. So why not? Right. So yeah, anyway, but yeah. that's on the 10th. And, and there are still tickets available for that if people are interested. Um, but there won't be for long because we really filled up a lot of it this past weekend. So get on it if you're interested. Um, awesome yeah and they make great right? stocking stuffers and stuff and you well, know things well for, the book the, the book would if you had a big stocking um yeah right know, smaller um like uh bathroom companion <laughs> tiny, or little tiny little tiny books so yeah you know little uh, pocket diary size yes exactly well let's uh <laughs> let's go ahead and i'll dive into a listener review here oh, okay. uh, this is this one comes from itunes it's from alexis 10 1994 it's just Don't titled, they all come from itunes sometimes i pull them from different places oh actually. do you oh okay all yeah right, right. well i'm gonna um, be a smart like then I'll... no no it's it's Let's fair go. it's a fair question uh, it's, it's titled never been interested before it says That's i've never been thing. interested in the paranormal it always freaked me out so not sure if trauma got me interested or what but i absolutely <laughs> love the podcast thanks for giving his history facts as well um i don't know how if somebody's not interested in this stuff how we brought them around i but... yeah I, I don't know either but we had a lot i mean i every weekend that i've had events whether it's river roads or dinners or whatever i have people more and more people tell me oh, we just love the podcast and i always say which Aww. podcast so <laughs> i assume they don't mean ours but apparently they do so that's kind of fun so <laughs> they're like yeah uh, that astonishing that. legends podcast you <laughs> yeah, were on it was whatever, it was great <laughs> yeah Oh, man. Okay, so this is something uh, we've talked about a lot of axe murders before. We've talked about a lot yes. of axe murderers before. Yes. Um, and this one is, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say different. It, it's more. It is different. Extreme. I mean, it, yeah. Oh, it is. I think this one is, I mean, as bad as, you know, as bad as we did. I mean, we did an entire season on, you know, the, the axe man and the, the Velisca murders and all the other murders associated with this killing spree and while they were horrible they, i mean there's no question they were horrible this is worse yeah this is a lot worse i mean these are really really brutal and sick and twisted and all of the other elements that go along with it um is just you know oh god even freakier 
you know, then, then uh, it just is <laughs> just, you know, you're right. Yeah. You're right. There, These are a lot there, worse. And it's a lot higher body count. We're talking like 45 people, you know, That's that we know of. of. Yeah. Yeah. That we know of. Exactly. I mean, there could be more that have never been connected. It's that's always a possibility. I, I just did an interview recently about Velisca and, um, and the, the interviewer had asked me if they, you know, plan to, you know, ever revisit those crimes. And I said, well, you know, as technology improves, as far as getting into other old newspapers, I will probably take another run at it at some point and see if I missed anything, because there could be something else out there that we don't even know about. I mean, it mm-hmm. might connect stuff even more. It's hard to say. Um, but uh, this one is just, I mean, this is, this is, this one's bad. It is bad. It is. It is. And I it's been upsetting me for the last couple of days. Um, so I'm happy to kind of work through this uh, trauma. Yeah. Of, uh, talking about this. A lot, a lot of, of kids, kids and babies and stuff, man. It's right. Bad. Yes. And as much as, yeah, I don't like children, don't like ghost kids. I don't <laughs> want them to meet this kind of fate. No. Um, but but some some general questions about this. Um, yeah. I'm curious about when you're doing your research. So we talked about Villisca. We've talked about uh, New Orleans. We've talked about. The Axe sure. Fiend, you, you've done a lot of Axe things, um, even um, that book you did with, what was it, Fear the Reaper? Or what you, I feel like there's been yeah, some- a bunch some, of Axe murders in there too, like one-offs, but still, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, still how, a lot okay. of Axe murders. How do you, when there's a lot of these things going on at the same time, how do you determine um, whether things are connected or um, just kind of randomly sure. happen at the same time? Is is it methodology? Is it distance traveled and proximity and in dates and times? How, how do you kind of differentiate between uh, all these different uh, <laughs> crazy serial yeah, yeah. acts murderers? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of the one-off stuff doesn't fit into this stuff, but when you're looking at this time period between 1909 and 1912, when all the murders in this episode happened, you had uh, the New Orleans Axemen, operating at the same time but those were all easily connected they they all happened within the city or nearby the city right across the river and you know they took place you know most of those took place after these but even so you know there was there's a little bit of a carryover there but there's nothing to really connect them to this axe man and there, there's also that, Louisiana, that and know. that guy also had um seemed like more like a uh, press contact wanted the enemy, yeah, maybe. Yeah, a yeah. he more. wanted attention. And uh, most of them, you know, most of them were immigrants, you know, all connected in some way. Oh, the and victims. Course, sure, sure. Yeah. And then, you know, from 1911 to 12, you had the Billy the Axeman ones that we talked about in our season, our murdered in the bed, their bed season. And those were taking place kind of at the, t- they started at the tail end of these. But geographically speaking they were far enough apart that they were more midwestern than they were south and it's easy for us to want to connect all the axe murders but there really doesn't seem to be any connection between what happened in you know illinois and colorado and kansas and iowa with what was happening in texas and 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 louisiana the only similarities there really are is that the the killers murdered families while they slept and probably rode from town to town using the railroad, but that's pretty much where it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the Texas and Louisiana acts, man, had a specific reason for the murders he committed. All of the, all of his victims were the same. They were either black or mixed race, all of them. Um, there was no variation there. He didn't accidentally kill white people, except for Lewis Cassaway's wife, 
but she was married to a black man and had mixed race children. Other than that, there was no crossover there at all. So you're talking about completely different types of family, completely different types of victims. I mean, you know, and, and connecting the railroads, I mean, we're thousands and thousands of guys who work for the railroads or rode them as transients in the early 20th century. And lots and lots of murders used you know, by acts, we've talked about that before, that I mean, you know, it was an easy weapon to use because it was right there. Everybody had one. It was a weapon of opportunity. And if you tried to connect all these murders to the Midwest axe murders, I, <laughs> that's more murders than humanly possible all at the same time. I just don't think it could be done. Now, I will admit I did, I did consider the idea that the Cassaway family in San Antonio might have been part of the Midwest axe murders. But by the time I looked into it further, I could see and connected the dots with the other ones. I could see that they, they weren't connected. I mean, the, the cassaways were just like all the other murders, you know, murder scenes, murder victims connected to this killer, you know, with the, the black and mixed race victims that he chose. Do you so, think? Uh, yeah, and then the religious think, overtones and that kind of thing. It just makes it different. Yeah, and and we'll dive into the religious overtones. Uh, do you think, based on okay, the fact that he kind of seemed to choose his victims based on race and things like that, does that mean that there had to have been some uh, like a little bit more premeditation or like some stalking sort of thing to figure out who these people were, where they lived, a little bit more than the yeah. randomness we've seen yeah. with no, like Liska. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think that there was more time taken with these where with the Velisca or with the Midwest murders and Velisca, I think yeah. that those were almost randomly chosen. I think he just picked houses that were close to the railroad that he could get access to. Uh, I don't think he really cared who he killed as long as he killed somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy had a specific plan. And I think he probably spent, and again, that goes to the idea that there's no way that this guy could have been white. He would have stuck had out. to have been black. He would have stuck out because of the neighborhoods he was going to in, in every newspaper story. And I mentioned it a couple of times, uh, you know, within this, they, they would call it the, the colored section or the, you know, the Negro section or something. And so these were bad neighborhoods, you know, at, at that time period, a lot of these people lived in what were essentially shacks, mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, they were poor neighborhoods, all African American residents, and if a white guy had been one, even if he had just walked in and walked back out, someone would have remembered him. But in this case, nobody mentioned it, uh, because there were just too many transient workers and people coming and going that there was just no way to keep track of everybody. And I think he just blended into the neighborhood and then chose whoever he wanted to kill and did it and left. So, so I, I think he worked for the railroad. I don't think this was a bum. I don't think this was some guy just riding the rails. I honestly think he was employed by the railroad, which is what put the distance between the murders. I don't think he was just riding randomly. I think he was on his job. And I think that when the copycat murders happened, he was outside the area. And then some time passed before he could get back to make a point. Mm -hmm. So you think this guy, then I would imagine, and this just di diving into the psyche of a crazy person. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, but let's right. take it with a, whatever grain of salt you want to, but I'm guessing, uh, 
was probably experienced probably some racism and felt uh, guilt about maybe who he was or, you know, maybe maybe he was mixed race and thought, okay, I've been told this is not good. So now I'm going to do something about it. I I feel like he's taking out the the pain that was probably pushed onto him onto others, I would imagine. It makes sense. It, It does make sense. Or in some way he was. Uh, offended um, or, um, you know, prejudiced against by people who were of mixed race, you mm, know, making okay. it lesser than. I mean, it was Louisiana. you got to remember that in the early days of Louisiana, there was a lot of mixed race. You know, right. uh, we talked about that with the Octoroon balls and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So those usually a higher ranking over you know, um, people who were just strictly African-American. So maybe that was part of it too. It's, it's impossible for us to know. Sure. Um, sure, sure. There's somebody who was trying to purge any whiteness out of, you know, out of, you know, his, his race, or it was somebody getting revenge on people who had done him wrong. It, it's mm-hmm. impossible to say, but I think there are a couple of different options you can look at with that. That's a good point. Uh, okay. Something that, I was wondering about, I, I started to look up like stats about axe murders and axe, um, you know, crimes and things like that. It was, and I just kind of did this quickly because I thought, oh, you know, I got a couple hours till this episode. I'll be able to figure it out. Couldn't, <laughs> yeah, couldn't right. find a lot before, but um, yeah. as far as like family annihilations go, we've really only talked about for the most part, axe murders and things. And I'm curious, yeah. like in, in yeah. your comings and goings and stuff, um, have you seen a lot since then where entire families are slaughtered just with different weapons did, did this do i just have a bias now that this was oh, just an old time no, thing no 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 it continues to happen um regrettably it does continue to happen it's just that uh, the tools changed you know mm. and so i don't usually delve into stuff that's that new you know what i right, mean i don't right. really talk about it that much and so axe murders always uh, appeal to me as something to research Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, there have been, you know, well, I mean, here, here's a perfect example. Um, and, and time-wise, it's, it's it's the anniversary of it is right about now is uh, the murders that happened in Amityville before there was the ridiculous Amityville horror. That was right. a real family annihilation by one of the members of the family who went through the house with a high-powered rifle and shot every one of his family members. I mean, you know, that was in the 70s. I mean, yeah. it happens and it still happens. You know, there are still plenty of stories about family annihilators. I've seen entire books on that. And, you know, there's even, um, you know, there's even a kind of a, they've broken that down psychologically to guys who are going through like um, monetary money troubles, you know, or, or filed for bankruptcy or something. And now they feel they're so ashamed that they don't want their, to put their family to shame. So they kill all of them. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. I know it's, but that's the kind of thinking that, goes through, you know, someone's head who's obviously mentally ill. Um, and that's seems like an okay thing to do to people. Right. And uh, so that does happen a lot. It really does. Now, as far as people coming in and committing murders like that, I mean, well, we, we saw the Ketty murders a couple episodes yeah. ago. So that happens too. You know, yeah. I mean, we, we've seen plenty of horror films where that kind of thing happens, but there's a reason that we make horror films about it because it happened in real life. You know, and so we are, you know, putting our greatest fears onto the screen. Well, that's, you know, it it still happens that way, unfortunately. 
So. No, okay, no, it's a good point. And yeah, and with, with the Amityville horror thing, too, like people love to to ask me about that or talk about that. And I, I usually just say at Mike, look, have you ever uh, done heroin and LSD? Um, because <laughs> that's probably it's an it's an interesting combination. And uh, that's probably really what we were looking at mental illness and <laughs> a crazy amount of drugs i yeah. don't know if there was anything else uh with that there was also this game i don't know if i told you about it it was and some some nerd can correct me but it, this guy showed me this game one time and it was called i think it was called pt it was like playable teaser or something like that and the idea was you kept you were in the i, I believe this is correct it, you were in the amityville house after um, the murders were committed, and this guy just kept walking around in a circle in the entire house. But I each time he'd come, told me about that. Yeah, each time yeah. he'd come around, things would be different, and like walls would be melting, and like things would be. And it was like the scariest game I had ever yeah. played yeah, in my entire life. About that, yeah. Oh man. Okay. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about this this axe fiend. Um, Police had a repeat murderer on their hands, and some thought that they might have been connected to the Church of Sacrifice Murders. So, so okay, here's here's what I kind of want to clarify with you is that you you think that these murders were they did have some kind of religious connotation, but not what was reported necessarily in the media. Well, is that yeah, correct? no, 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 no. That's yeah, I do think they did have some kind of um, you know a religious connection because of the way that he left things posing the bodies um mm -hmm. in prayerful ways um he posed the the one couple praying over their dead children um then of course there oh. was the the murders that took place there toward the end the the really big one uh that happened where he murdered the 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 father and mother and then drained the blood of the children and then used it to write bible verses on the door and sh i mean it's some yes. crazy stuff man but um, so I think that, you know, and, and then it got into the minds of some of the, the policemen who were looking into this, uh, that maybe that it was, it was suggested to them by a minister that it might have something to do with that prayer or that, that Bible verse about, yes. you know, yes. cutting down the tree, pruning the branches of the tree and casting oh, them have... into the fire, because that was a big, um, that was, that was going around at the time by racists and things mm -hmm. who were using that as their motto when they suggested that maybe this guy was too right so because yeah, well, so. that 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 bible verse was written by a bunch of white guys right so well, sure absolutely <laughs> uh, absolutely and they uh -huh. their idea was that he was doing the same thing except from the obviously from the opposite direction so <laughs> and yeah. i i looked so i looked into this a little bit more uh the biblical passage it was uh psalms 9 12 read that when he maketh the inquisition for blood he forgetteth not the cry of the humble and so i was like Okay, what the hell does that mean? And I, I looked into it, and some people said it might be. Oh, you're David talking and... about the one painted on the door. Oh, I, I was yes, I'm sorry. About the I'm one sorry. that motivated the murders. I'm sorry. No, so no, no. I, no. I jumped ahead. So, no, no. But yeah, I... go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me about the one painted on the door. So, so yes, yeah, so this one talked about uh, it might potentially be connected to David and Goliath, but uh, something I thought that was interesting and way more brutal uh, was the Arabic version renders it. He remembers him that seeks their blood. That is the wicked man that lies in wait for innocent blood and whose feet are swift to shed it. The man of sin who is bloodthirsty, who drinks up the bloods of the saints like water and has made has been made drunk with the blood of martyrs of Jesus 
him will God remember and take vengeance on in his own time. And it kind Jesus. of seemed pretty, <laughs> yeah, right? No, it, like drink the oh, blood of the saints. I was like, yeah. water. Like, <laughs> it, it kind of seemed like, I, I was confused by this one a little bit because it, it seemed almost like the verse was saying, uh, God won't forget those who have been killed. He will sort them out. And but then I was confused as is the killer saying God will sort me out or is he saying like I am I'm, God I God am sorting need him. to sort them out yeah um, yeah I don't know it's a good question I don't think we'll ever know that either and um, even if and we even don't if even the, know why he chose that one to paint on the door I mean well even if the guy some reason to him so even if the guy told us straight from his lips we'd probably still be like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> yeah, oh, like, yeah exactly and, but yeah. okay the the inscription though the human five thing yeah. I I am always very intrigued by the things that I will just this is not politically correct but crazy ass people come up with and, and it's like the um the um shutter island thing the uh what is it the oh gosh the rule of seven or whatever the hell it is where because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you know because yeah. he has all those i i, I right. should have researched that more but um uh, i'm always curious about like where these things come from what they mean and the fact that it just stops there we don't get any yeah anything never brought up again it? except by the newspapers who of course went crazy trying to come up with suggestions of what it might be and i mean it's i get into that a lot more in the book i get into more of what the newspapers were doing because the newspapers just drug this thing out for months after the murders even stopped you know right. trying to convince everybody that they were going to happen again because of the voodoo church and all this crazy stuff that they made up Yes, it was the. I'm sorry, it was the rule of four in Shutter oh, yeah, Island. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember. Yeah, um, but yeah, but but okay. So eventually, and I'm I'm jumping all around here too. But just because uh, you know, like I said, we said earlier before we started recording, it was just it's yeah, a lot of murders, really a lot long of murders. Ones, so Yeah, but uh, rumors spread that Clementine uh, Barnabet was a leader of a cult called the Church of Sacrifice. But like, what a great name for like a media boogeyman back oh, then. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, I mean, okay, what do you want to do? Like, do I, we can't go? I don't. A no, lot of families to, were slaughtered. Yeah, like, we don't need to go murder through murder on this thing. There's just no point. So I know I'm trying I to think. Okay, there yeah, are I mean, there are some, and everybody that, just heard it. So we always right. forget that when we do this. Sometimes we just <laughs> we forget they literally heard this two minutes ago. So right. Yeah. <laughs> and there, so there are some that are a little bit different um, than others, though. So, okay, let's talk yeah, about yeah, February, yeah. February 19th, 1912, Beaumont, Texas, um, Hattie Dove and daughters. And so uh, this is one where he takes an axe from the neighbor, but like replaces one with another yeah. axe. And, and I yeah. kind of wondered, was I was like, crazy. I was wondering, too, I was like, you know what, if they didn't just leave the axes all over the place, like it wouldn't be smart. It would be smart to maybe move the axe from town to town. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, take I mean, one, yeah, move yeah. far away from the crime yeah, scene. I mean, yeah, I guess if you I mean, you know, since you're traveling by well, semi-public transportation, although, like I said, I still think this guy worked for the railroad. Yeah, it would have been hard just dragging an axe around with you everywhere you went. And since it, every again, since everyone had one, it was easy to pick one up. But that one was it was just so weird that he took that guy's axe and then stole someone else's and replaced it. Right. I mean, it makes no sense. Again, it, it's one of those things that makes absolutely no sense. But it's just so bizarre. You can't help but mention it. You know, I mean, there's just no way not to. Something something else I've been wondering too with uh with all okay so 
a couple we so we have a few different axe murder or we have a few different uh repeat murderers and they're traveling the train and they're traveling around the same time same area that sort of thing yeah not really the same area though well i'm, I'm sorry, talking I'm about sorry, completely so. different railroads so i mean you're talking about railroads that don't ever connect with each other Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. You see what I'm so, saying? Yeah. Sure. We're we'll traveling on East and West railroads. Well, so. Okay. So, so. Okay. So. So my overall point, though, and that that is good clarification. But my overall point is, a few different psychos figure out a similar way to kind of use sure. this certain system, get off, do their thing, get back on, and peace out. And I've and now this kind of puts a little like uh, a damper on what I was saying, but I just always wondered. <laughs> Do these guys ever run into each other in a train, in a bar, in anything? Do they ever like, are they, do they ever cross and know, like, you know, like I've always wondered about serial killers meeting up with each other and can they, can they smell out the other one? You know, do they recognize the crazy in someone else? Yeah. 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 Can they do that? I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's hard to say. Is that you how know? you and I got together? We did the podcast and went for <laughs> yeah, lunch, and we were like, realized the crazy in the other one. Yeah, maybe so. That makes sense, actually. So they start <laughs> to add um, the media starts to add the black magic stuff to the mix, and Clementine um, Barnabet. So let's let's dive into this a little bit. Um, something I was wondering about with with like false confessions and stuff like that. Is it this? Is it maybe that? like does this give somebody their 15 minutes of fame maybe like and they're just like hey i'm not gonna make a big name for myself otherwise fuck it i'll just like take this or is there more to it like what do you think well no you know i can't understand the motivation behind all that because originally she testified against her father you know and said that he was the one who did it and then while he was in jail she went out and committed more murders to make it look like it couldn't be him yeah so i don't understand what the motivation was and then she decides to confess you know and then but you know like, like i said i think the only murders she committed were the two that don't match the mo of the others. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah um so i think that you know they don't match and i think that her involvement in those that was the end of it and probably her brother was involved too because uh, I don't think she did, probably did them by herself, but then decides to make up all these stories. And she would name names that are members of her cult. And they were guys that were just like dudes around town that, you know, <laughs> she decided to name. They're like, the fuck, what? You know, and they're like, no, here I was. And they're like, okay, well, this guy didn't do anything. So we got coffee one that, Yeah, names that minister, you know, and he's like, what? what? You know, so he's just as puzzled as everybody else is. And then she just keeps going and just keeps making stuff up. And to the point that even the newspapers who had already, you know, been, you know, already stoking the flames of everything, even they don't believe her after a while because she's just become so nutty. And they eventually convict her of the copycat crimes and she goes to jail for a few years, you know, but I don't think they just knew what to do with it. You know, I just think they were just so baffled. It was such a muddled mess that, you know, they did the best they could with the prosecution that they didn't even know what to do with, you know, I just think she wanted the attention and got it because I mean, certainly I can guarantee you that no one would have ever have heard of her if not for this incident without her confessions. um, No one would have ever have heard of this woman. So that's what I'm wondering is like, did did she do it just to be like, this is my chance to, I guess, make a name for myself. Again, though, it's just one of those things. Why would you, 
Why would you lie your way into prison? Well, of course, I think she deserved to go because I do think she was involved in two of the crimes. But yeah, the rest of them, though, and everything that she, you know, confessed to, <laughs> she wasn't involved with. So, well, so I don't, something that's also crazy. intrigued me is um, like we see this portrayed in movies and television a lot. And I guess in real life, too, where serial killers, um, you know, don't like people taking credit for the things that they've done. And so they say, like, no, th- you know, I'm the real Zodiac right, or right, you know, right, whatever. Sure. My, my thinking is is and this is coming from what I think is the opinion of a sane person. But I would <laughs> like I would like people imitating me and i would kind of like the chaos it creates because then i think i'd be able to like keep doing my stuff for longer and maybe i just don't have the <laughs> big ego that the serial killers yeah, do well, have. Yeah, right i mean it's i don't even know that it's ego it's it's insanity i mean the, you're talking about your, where's the your, lines that's sane thinking you're 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 giving <laughs> the same thinking you can't put your mind you can't get into the mind of this guy I mean, this guy's completely got his own ideas of what the hell's going on and what he should be doing. And pretty sure God was telling him to do this stuff and purify the black race. So off he goes and he wants to make sure that he gets credit for the murders that he committed, not the ones that took place after the one he committed. He wants everybody to know this was the one and this is me. And look, I'm going to, you know, drink their blood and I'm going to drain it into a bucket I'm going to paint it on the walls and I'm going to paint Bible verses. So, you know, I was here, you know, because already, I mean, the cops were talking about, they thought that they had a religious maniac on their hands. I mean, and that's, that's, that's some of that stuff was pretty far ahead thinking for the time for the, mm. um, you know, Louis Lacoste only gets a small amount of time in the podcast, but I give him a lot more in the book because mm-hmm. This was the guy who put it all together in the first place before anybody else did. And this was a time when, you know, police agencies did not work amongst each other. They did not cooperate with each other, not because they <laughs> now hated they do. each other or anything. Oh, yeah, they're not much better, but they're better than they were. But at the time, they didn't they would have never have connected anything outside their area. He picked up something from his parish, another parish. And then when somebody told him about San Antonio, he put that together, too. So this is a guy who really, really worked hard to try to break this case. In fact, most of the cops involved did, which is kind of turns the idea of, you know, racist Southern cops on its ear because they, you know, had little motivation to do this, at least as if we believe everything we hear sure. about how the South was at the time. But these guys worked hard solving murders of families of Black and mixed race people. And it was the newspapers that were the real racists in this story mm-hmm. and the people who took advantage of it, you know, because there were plenty of citizens to take advantage of it, too. But it was really the newspapers who spun it out of control. It, it for in this case, it wasn't the cops or at least the ones that we know of, the ones that worked hard like Louis Lacoste. Right. No, okay, no, that makes sense. And I, I guess when you're talking about uh, agencies and things working more closely together and stuff. So I know now I'm I, okay. I know now it's harder to get, you know, interdepartmental agency, you know, CIA, FBI, all those things oh, to work sure. together. But, but I'm guessing back then it was even harder. Like now, states well, there can was work no, together. No connection. I mean, sure. I mean, they didn't have a database. Well, I mean, they had telephones, and by then, and they had maybe you know telegraphs to send a wire. But it's not like you can, you know, log into the network and look it up on Vicap, you know, right. to see if there were similar crimes. I mean, it just 
you know, there wasn't any way to do that back then. So these guys, you you could say they were a few hours away by train, but shit, they might have been might as well have been on the other side of the country, uh-huh. you know, completely cut off from each other. Um, and it was, you know, it's it's I don't know. It just says a lot about the work that was put into this, but yeah. it didn't really get anywhere. You know, is, um, is this I mean, these this... were these weren't the local yokels like in Villisca. Right. You know, I mean, this was an old poor old Hank down the road trying to solve a murder <laughs> that like nothing had ever seen before. And while these guys didn't really spend a lot of time doing anything other than locking up drunks, they really put a lot of time into this. You know? Right. Do you think um, so? This this brings me back to a case of uh, Robert Picton in Canada who uh, killed a lot of young black prostitutes for and he got away with it for years and years and years because they were what and I don't like this term but what they were called the less dead right, um, because right. police didn't investigate the crimes as much is do you think this killer got away with it uh, so much longer because you know because of that or was it just a combination of circumstances I, I don't yeah you know um, I think there's a combination here because um, you know. I'm sure that some of the cops in some of these towns were not working as hard as the ones I would like to highlight here and go, oh, look, sure. Because I'm sure that a lot of them saw these people as expendable, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't know if that's part all of it, but I'm sure it could be part of it, especially mm-hmm. in some of the towns. I think it's probably um a big possibility, you know. Yeah, that- but like but like you said, some cops were just working relentlessly to to connect these dots and i'm guessing did yeah. a lot of the like honestly did a lot of sort of work for you for your book victims yes. of the axe fiend to connect a lot of these yes. dots that would have taken you a lot yes. longer to, to figure yeah. out or well i guess you have the database and stuff, well so i they still were- had to i still had to go through the database because some of the murders were not documented very well i mean uh, at all if, if at all so i really had to dig into the newspapers uh, and then up until the point where um, once Clementine got involved in all this, it made it a lot harder to do it because the newspaper stories were so out of control. Mm, I mean, uh-huh. the, the, all the voodoo murder stuff and the cults and that, you know, voodoo, it's human sacrifice and all this, stuff, none of which is true, of course. Um, and so, you know, that made it a little harder to get accurate stories. You had to go mm-hmm. and really look through the some of the other papers because none of these murders happened in El Paso, but that's the newspaper that started all the black magic voodoo stuff. And so you could ignore El Paso and go with where the murders actually happened and get a little bit more clear of a story. So right. that's what I had to do. No, that makes sense. And then even like you just talking about how some of these weren't well, well documented. So that means, I mean, in your research and stuff, there could be, this could be a blip on page 14 for another mm-hmm. murder that just is yeah. not connected uh, right. to anything. And it just right. could, yeah. So this victim count, I'm guessing you probably rarely in a case like this get 45 is probably a low estimate, I'm guessing for- It could be. I mean, it's it seems like an astronomical number compared to everything else, but- I mean, considering that some of these involve five and six people at a time, once you start adding those up, they add up pretty fast. Um, right. So, and like I said, I, you know, just like with Velisca, at some point I'll take another pass at this mm-hmm. and see if anything else pops. Because as more and more stuff gets online, more and more information becomes available. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> uh. Man, I don't know. What else is there to talk about? I mean, we, the guy was never yeah. caught. And yeah, uh, and 
I think somebody like this is probably not caught because they are killed or they're in jail. Like I don't yeah. think people just well, decide and, you to know, stop. I think one of the things that we've always talked about with this kind of thing is this guy either ends up in jail for something else, um, completely loses his mind and end up locked up somewhere, or probably more likely based on the time period and the work environment, probably killed working for the railroad for all right, we know. Right. Maybe that's right. why the murder stopped. Um, I mean, we don't know, but it's certainly a possibility because this guy didn't seem like he was getting ready to stop anytime sure. soon. There were still there were no big delays between murders. They just suddenly quit. All of a sudden stopped. Right. You know, and um, unlike where, with like Velisca, where the last one happened like over a year between, it was almost like he had been maybe locked up somewhere or something, got back out, committed another murder. And then we don't know what happened after that, but this one just kept going boom, boom, boom. And then nothing. So I, I have to think that something abruptly brought this to an end. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a real crazy ramp up period or or anything. Yeah. Or big stretch out. Yeah. Like he was going to stop. It just stopped. Uh, Man, well, what it? I know we've talked about this before, but what what is it about Axmar? Is the brutality? Is it the 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 time period? What what is it that makes you write about this shit so often? I, I, and I, I don't clearly know. draws I, you to this. I, I I am. It fascinates me. I guess it's um. I don't know what. I don't really know what it is, other than it's almost that. It's a it's a kind of murder that is so American and so mm. of its time and so mundane, really, because everyone had an axe. Mm-hmm. So when you get a string of these murders all committed in a similar way using the same weapon, I just I find it really interesting. And I find it, like I said, I mean, not that the axe murders haven't happened in other countries, obviously, but. There's just something about it in this country that just makes it so, so American. It's like hitting somebody with a big Mac or something. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I I mean, it is. It is. It is. It kind of is, actually. It is like the Big Mac of the 19 teens. You know, I mean, everybody had an axe. So, you know, um, like killing someone with McDonald's now. Um, So (laughs) I guess it's kind of the same type of thing. Um, And I don't know. It just really interests me, Um, especially when you have these unknown unsolved string of murders that you know are interesting to research and interesting to see the reaction of the people at the time you know what? I, I you can't even compare it really to anything now because it's not the kind of thing that really happens i mean it doesn't i mean it does you can't get away with it's it. not the same right it's just not the same what i I've, i feel like i know the answer to this question just because of the amount of books you've written on different things but i'm do do um, strings of murders that go completely unsolved? Do those seem to intrigue you more than a serial killer, where we sit them down and get some explanations and have a prison yeah, interview sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. There's some. Um, I don't. I haven't written a lot about um, killers that uh, we we know what happened and we got them and they went to. I mean, I've written about it, but it doesn't right. interest me as much as the stuff that's unsolved. I like to be able to poke at it. And see if I could come up with some kind of idea or, you know, figure out the the, the motive or the methods behind it. I, it's that's to me, that's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, and more interesting, I guess, than than to say, you know, even if it's somebody really intriguing, it's um, I don't know I, that this, the, the stuff that's left unsolved 
always fascinates me more. Gosh, I wondered if we have any psychologists, psychiatrists, listen, <laughs> let's dive into Troy's psyche about yeah, this. Yeah, let's not. No, um, no, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a bad plan. So it, it does for him, but I am very curious about all of this. Um, oh, the last thing I'll say is that they talked about the religious aspect of this. And it just reminds me, I watched uh, Blood Diamond not too long ago again, which is. Oh, yeah. I have seen that yeah. Such a great film. And they Leonardo DiCaprio talks about, you know, um, somebody saying, you know, will God ever forgive us, you know, what we've done to this land? And he says, I realize God left this place a long time ago. <laughs> and it just makes me wonder, yeah. like, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah, right. Uh, all right. Well, I'm gonna dive into some Patreon subscribers now. Uh, now that we've ended on that great, yeah, note. on that lovely note, yeah, yes. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you uh, for to Kathy, Margie, Chrissy, Leone, Cami, Emily, Tammy, Linda, Jeffrey, Crystallized Ice, <laughs> Kari, Shadowmaster three fourteen, and Melanie. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Like we yeah, said, and that, that's and-, and that's more than usual at a time and why is it more than usual because we just started the second season of our patreon only podcast yes uh, episode two just went up last week uh, episode three will be coming next week and we are rolling that out uh, every other week to uh, go along so that if you're a patreon supporter you get a show a new show every week uh, with the regular podcast and with the patreon podcast so um, we've, we've, we, we always see a big pickup when we start the new seasons of that. And, um, this one is rolling along and, uh, I'm enjoying it. Don't know if Cody is or not, but I know no, I am um, no. working on it. You're probably not because no, he got if, to listen to me do, uh, he got to listen to me do Norwegian accents and, um, I was, <laughs> and I, Hey, you said I could have made that a lot harder for you. Which no, I, I if, if basically, if anyone needs a royalty-free library of train sounds and ad sounds, I found <laughs> yeah. them and I yes. have them. Yes, and I, people, seem like this, people seem to like this. People seem to like the sound fun. effects. It's yeah. fun to put the sound effects in the Patreon thing, and um, and then I I I try to do more than I than I do on this one. This one I I will read and I enjoy reading the podcasts and telling the story, but I. I perform the stories for the Patreon podcast you do. with different voices and stuff. And I have to admit it is fun. Well, <laughs> that's something that you and I have talked about too. We, so when we used to record the podcast, uh, you would do the monologues right there with me. Yeah. And then yeah. eventually we started doing that remotely. And you even said, yeah. you're like, I get to like get more into character, uh-huh. get more I animated. Can't do it. I can't do it if somebody's sitting there watching me. Right. I just but, but, but I, but I can, I can hear like you change into a different person and I, I can feel your animations and stuff. And so I like, I think it makes for a better show, honestly, because yeah, you don't have an fun. audience and you get to just yeah. do whatever you want to do. It is a lot of fun. And then I get yeah. to hear Troy's like very animated, creative, uh, cursive uh, stream. Yeah, well, when I mess stuff up, yeah, it makes me mad because I'll be on a roll. It's not the same as this, you know, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm. I'm performing. And then when I mess it up, then it makes me mad. Cause then I got to start my, you know, I got to get back into character. And you, <laughs> and so. you, right. And you, you have a pattern too. So you'll go for like, <laughs> so, so say for instance, so this, <laughs> this episode was uh 26 pages, the outline. Yeah, you'll like get 45 minutes. Yeah. Please. You'll, you'll get like four or five pages in 
and you'll be flawless. And then you'll make a mistake and you'll get mad. You're like, I was on a roll. Then you keep going and you get more mad, more mad, more mad. And then (laughs) then the third part, you're like, that's when you start laughing about it. And you're like, I just, I just said, you know, that Northeastern, whatever, like you just like, whatever you say, like you'll repeat the things you fucked up and it's so funny. (laughs) Um, And yeah, but it's a good time. Um, Okay. Well, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So yeah, if you have a Sorry question or comment about the world of the macabre, you're good. You have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, <laughs> or if you have uh, dead or winter questions, you can email us at American oh, yeah, Podcast that's right. that's at gmail.com. Yes, we Amer- always like to have, we're not going to read bad reviews next time. No, we won't. Um, I think we're going to answer questions again. So yeah, I think we, we tap we, that out. I think now we give it another year. I think we'll have uh, yeah, maybe maybe our next hundredth, our two hundredth episode. Yeah, but this one comes to us from Aaron, and it's just titled "Twenty Nineteen Halloween Episode." Said still binge listening uh, to get caught up. Probably won't remember this, but okay. Well, no, you you get it. So still binge listening uh, to get caught up. Was listening to your twenty nineteen Halloween horror movie list. Love these episodes. I get so many great ideas to watch. But I have to make one comment about one of the movies that made the list. The Relic is a great movie, but an absolute horrible adaptation of the book. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. LT DaCosta is the sidekick, and they cut the main character completely out of the movie. This is the first book in the Special Agent Pendergast Pendergast series, Uh, one of my all-time favorite fiction thriller series. I'm not a fan of all the remakes, but this is a movie that doesn't deserve – I'm sorry, this is a movie that – deserves a remake done right so have you read that book oh yeah or that, that series yeah, no okay. i've read the book I, I i read i kept up with the series for a while and i've fallen behind on it but yeah the the book is yeah it's completely different because really he's not that agent who is that he's talking about is not even in the movie at all oh. <laughs> not at all and uh. so um yeah so they they had to I mean I they I guess they didn't want it to be a franchise kind of thing so they were just making a one off movie of this and decided to just make it a monster movie with a cop, yeah. you know and then it got moved to Chicago from New York and it so it's because they couldn't film at the Natural History Museum in New York but in the Field Museum because in Chicago little money will get you anything you want sure, to do there sure, so yeah. they just shot at the Field Museum instead which is fun to see you know to see at Chicago but yeah um so no i i agree i i think that i don't remember what that list or what we were talking oh about. i don't i don't either but i do you know ago. i do like the movie so i'm not sure why it was on the list um it was probably was maybe that was in the 90s it, it had to have been something i bet like it that. was yeah. i bet it was the 90s and i put that on there because it's just what i it's a i like the relic yeah yeah it's a popcorn movie it's fun you know well it's like i watched the relic and the faculty and like some of those sort of oh, yeah, movies, yeah, sure, you know? absolutely yeah, yeah. But Aaron, I had no idea. So thank you so much. I'll have to check out the book then. Um, if that's and I love when people are like, hey, if you like the movie, <laughs> yeah, you'll love the book. Like I love, right. like I love that. Uh, <laughs> oh man, Troy, that's all I got, dude. Okay, man. Well, that's all right. So we are gearing up. We have one more episode this one, um, and it will be a Christmas themed episode, as it worked out. Um, so that will be falling in December, and then we will soon be recording our end of the year movie list. Um, I'd also like to, I, I do want to give a mention to the worst movies I watched this year. I'm sure there were others that were worse, but ones that actually made my list that I watched thinking they wouldn't be so bad and turned out to be one star or less. Oh, let's do I it. I definitely want to include those in. I also want to talk about a couple of series 
um, that came out horror series because some of the horror series that I've seen this year are better than some a good part of the movies I've seen this year. We might as well so start we mixing those mention, two. Yeah, we should kind of put those in and maybe a separate category or something. or something. Just you know, uh, because there are some series that uh, have really been excep- exceptional that came from yeah different streaming services this year. So. Uh, yeah. I'd like to mention those two. So. And we're going to record that live together. Too. Yes, we are. We are. Um, we'll be recording that in a couple of weeks. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm fun. excited for that. Well, yeah. awesome. Well, I hope that this episode left you feeling bright and happy and um, just yeah. <laughs> yeah, grab your family a little tighter tonight. <laughs> yeah. Lock, nice. lock your Make sure the doors, doors are locked. Yeah. yeah. And, your or, windows, and the windows please. because apparently it comes in through the window. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, little snub nose or twenty two or something. Whatever you don't do. stand in front of the mirror and say Axe Fiend, you know, five times because <laughs> Troy will show up and it's a manscape yes. dad. Yeah. Oh yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, this episode of the American Ongs podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm. You can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. You can. Oh, find which reminds on- me, I need to talk to him about next season. Yeah, you do. I will, he's on tour right now, though. See, I got. Uh, I got fucking rock he, stars. I know. Well, he's on tour till like mid December, and then he's done. And I remember last year it was the same thing. Yeah, so just tell him to record in the band mid December, and we'll we'll get something for next season. Tell him he can just play some of the songs live. We'll take those recordings <laughs> and yeah, just like always warming up. Um, anyway, find us on those places. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, a ton of other places I've never even heard. Or anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast, find the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. Check it out for more uh, show info, notes, photos, links, more. Thanks for listening. We couldn't. Definitely wouldn't. Have you listened to that, um, speaking of Spotify, have you listened to that Jordan Peele podcast that just came out? No. Quiet quiet Part Loud. I couldn't get into it. I tried. I I love podcasts. It's his podcast? um, yeah, well, he produces it. It's uh, it's mm-hmm. actors and it's it's decent name actors. I just couldn't get into it by like episode three. It was so weird. I didn't know what was going on. It was like so, a fiction, like an audio. Yeah, fiction, it's think? like an audio fiction. Uh, and they, you know, they kept saying, "Oh, it's gonna, you know, it'd be like oh, the Twilight Zone and stuff." And I'm like, "Oh no, I, I'm not mm, getting it." Jordan, so, I'll text him. So I don't know. See, Sorry I'll about see what's that. Going on. I, I just I meant to ask you about that earlier, and I forgot. And you said Spotify, and it reminded me. No, so. it's fine. I'll I'll text Jordan. Um, but yeah. Um, until <laughs> <Yeah>. next time. <laughs> goodbye. So long. See you later. See, see you later. All right, man. Um, okay. I got that masterclass ad put up today. Uh, oh, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't-